0: Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. Plod, don't sprint. Be fruitful like a tree, not efficient like a machine. These rules are good rules for life, but how much more during a crisis like COVID 19? Take advantage of the crisis. Don't fall behind in your 2020 goals get productivity by Douglas Wilson today at cannonpress.com yes, god god, don't never change. He's god so welcome to podcast this is episode 136 I wanted to begin by talking uh, today about what happens in worship. What is going on in a worship service? Um, And I want to begin by talking about the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, you have basically two settings, uh, heaven and earth. There are all these things that happen in the heavens, and then there are all these things that happen on earth. And the things that happen on earth are the consequence of the things that are done in heaven. God is worshipped in heaven. The, um, God is praised in heaven. Uh, angels are given vials to pour out in, in heaven. All of these things, uh, these transactions are made in the heavenly places. And then as a consequence, things happen on earth. And that's my understanding of the Lord's Prayer. Um, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I used to think that on earth as it is in heaven meant, may your will be done with great alacrity. You know, if God says, I'd like something done up in heaven, well, don't you imagine that the angels really hop to? Um, Yes. And so the prayer on that reading, the prayer is, may we be as um, quick to obey as the angels presumably are. And I think that that's still a. a blessed and helpful and edifying read of that clause in the prayer but there's something else uh, going on there's something else that i would like to suggest to you is perhaps going on uh, our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven so uh the god's will being done on earth as it is done in heaven is an example of, or an uh, an instance of, his kingdom coming. So, and, look at the phrases of the prayer as though it were cascading downward. So, we address our Father, and we hallow his name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Meaning that, in worship, we go into the heavenly places, empowered or taken there by the Holy Spirit. And as we're empowered and taken into the heavenly places by the Holy Spirit, if we're worshiping in the Spirit, then we hallow God's name. We're praising God's name in the heavenly places. And when we hallow God's name in power, in truth, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of truth is motivating us, and we really honor and glorify His name in the heavenly places, we are then in a position to pray. For his kingdom to come and as for his will to be done on earth as we just did it in heaven. So when we approach God in the heavenly places, when we approach him, uh, as it says in Hebrews 12, um, the author of Hebrews, whom who I take to be Paul, uh, says, You've not come to a mountain that can be touched. You've come to the heavenly Zion. So he's talking there about worship. When the saints gather together and the call to worship is issued and the invocation is prayed all of god's people are gathered up together and taken into the heavenly courts and we see this throughout the new testament the the phrase in christ or in him or in uh, in the lord occurs in paul's writings over 170 times it occurs in ephesians over 30 times so uh where is the church at ephesus if you if we want to put it this way Where is the church at Ephesus? The church at Ephesus is located in two places. First, to the saints who are in Ephesus. That's one place where they are. Um, We see that at the very beginning of the letter. But then we see all through the rest of the letter that the church at Ephesus is located in Christ, who is at the right hand of God the Father in the heavenly realms. So, what's happening in worship is this. The church constituted gathered as the church identified as such gathered is all gathered together and they are named in the invocation we the saints of god are going to come before you and worship you god now in the heavenly places we're gathered up by the spirit and we're taken into the heavenly courts and there we praise god we hallow his name and we pray for his kingdom to come to earth and that's the same thing as praying that his will would be done on Earth, the way we just did it in Heaven. Uh, so, uh, think of it another way. Uh, if you look at how silly a lot of worship has become in many evangelical quarters, that silliness means that it sort of helps explain why the Kingdom is not manifesting itself on Earth the way it ought to be. It's not the Kingdom is not coming. With power, it's because we're doing happy dances, and you know uh, the people gather and they sing little ditties and they, you know, trite and superficial songs. They listen to little little sermonettes for all the Christianettes, and they go home after a after a light and frothy time. Now, let's say that just imagine that the saints of God in a particular area were all gathered up by the Spirit and taken up into the heavenly courts and conducted their light and frothy time in front of the throne of God. And then basically prayed, God, we would like the kingdom to be taken as seriously on earth as we just took it in heaven. Well, that explains a lot, doesn't it? So, podcast 136, we are continuing with our hamartiology section. In our third installment on this set of cognates, we come to the word oskemon, and which is rendered in one place as simply uncomely. And it is this use that helps us to identify the full import of the other uses of the other cognates. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 23, it says this, And those members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, Upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts, there it is, have more abundant comeliness. Our, un, our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. Now, in this place, Paul is apparently talking about what we would call our private parts. And while this is not referring to sin proper, and so what What I'm doing with this uh, homo-theology section is looking at all the words that talk about sin or sins, Um, and this is not in that category. At the same time, there's uh, some degree of overlap. It's not talking about sin proper. There is an appropriate shame, nevertheless, surrounding it in the behavior of a fallen race. We are supposed to be reticent about our private parts, and those who are not are lewd. And behave in a shameless and unseemly fashion. So it's not, obviously not a uh, not an embarrassment, not a shame to have private parts, but it is a shame to not act as though they are right. And that's what that's what Paul says here: Our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. Our uncomely parts are parts that we take care to cover up. When our first parents sinned. One of the first indicators of the fact that they had done so was that they realized that they were naked. Before this, they were naked and unashamed, Genesis tells us, but now shame is supposed to come with the territory. Um, so the nudist or the, um, the flasher or the, the, the stripper or you know whoever it is, is, is abandoned in some sense. They are they're behaving in an unseemly, uncomely, shameful way. Now, of course, there are exceptions and cultural adaptations uh, when you go to see the doctor and, you know, um, a bunch of guys are at the gym or whatever. You know, there, it's, not, it's not that you're, I don't want to absolutize this as though uh, um, we can absolutize it in a wooden fashion. So there are, of course, cultural, uh, uh, there, there are, of course, exceptions and cultural adaptations. And what about this and what about that? But the fact remains that we are supposed to be very careful, according to Scripture, to cover ourselves. Modesty is a big deal. So, my book review this time is called Age of Entitlement by uh, Christopher Caldwell. Uh, This is a fantastic book. Um, So, let me give you his... Thesis, and then let me tell you why I think this thesis is so important, um, and maybe talk a little bit about how Caldwell connects it to everything. Uh, His thesis is that the 1964 Civil Rights Act, far from being a good thing that was subsequently shanghaied by bad actors, the 1964 Civil Rights Act was itself the establishment of a rival constitution that was embedded in united states law and began to operate and grow and metastasize alongside the traditions established by the first constitution the one that was established at the end of the 18th century so basically the age of entitlement argues that uh, that your the, the 1964 civil rights act introduced the kind of thinking that we are seeing today on uh affirmative action quotas hiring quotas um all all the pc nonsense uh descends descends in a straight lineal way from that um from that singularly bad bit of legislation so and and caldwell uh, shows his work he links he, he demonstrates how that is established the baseline for all kinds of subsequent terrible legal decisions now when you say for example you mean to say that um you mean to say that you're you're against the 1964 civil rights uh, civil rights act are you telling me That you think it should be legal for some owner of a diner on Main Street to refuse service to black people just simply and solely uh, because they're black? And the answer is yes, I do. I think that that should be legal. I wouldn't patronize a restaurant like that, but I think that a restaurant like that should be allowed to function. Because in the first constitution, you have this thing called freedom of association. You can associate with whom you please. Now, and, and if the government says, oh, no, you can't. Uh, you're, you've got to, you've got to uh, admit this person, and th- this person's got to be accepted. We've, we've gotten to the point where uh, boys can compete on girls' uh, athletic teams, where women can join exclusive men's-only clubs. All of this sort of thing comes from the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Now, uh, and in in addition to that, uh, this is the basis for evangelical cake uh, cake bakers and flower arrangers and photographers being forced to uh, give their professional um, uh, abilities to homosexual same-sex mirages, because freedom freedom of association has been denied in this new constitution. um, Caldwell's argument is simply uh, slam dunk compelling. The 1964 Civil Rights Act was a bad idea from the beginning. Now, that means that if a racist diner owner wants to set up shop in a town and wants to exclude um, black people or Jews or whoever, he should be allowed to do so and people should be allowed to patronize or not patronize his uh, diner as they see fit if they don't want to have their food served up to them by a racist bigot they don't have to go and if they happen to be black they can't go because he won't let them in but remember the jim crow when the jim crow laws were in their heyday it wasn't the bis- it wasn't the bigoted business owners that were making Jim Crow stick. It was the laws, in other words, um, in a large metro area, everybody's money is green. everybody's money is the same color, and business owners had all the incentives to attract as many customers as they as they could, and in the Jim Crow South, for example, in Birmingham, Alabama, it was the it was the city code, it was the regulations. Of the government that required non-racist restaurant owners to be formally racist in their behavior. All right, did you, did you get that? Government was the problem. When you go back to to Jim Crow, government was the problem. If you had just lifted the, uh, if you just lifted the uh, uh, the Jim Crow mandates and let restaurant owners do what they want. And you had desegregated those things that the, uh, that the government itself ran. So you wouldn't have, um, uh, whites and colored drinking fountains at the post office, say, um, you, you, basically the, the government, uh, said, we're, we're not going to, we're going to be colorblind when it comes to this sort of thing. We're not going to play that nonsense game. And, uh, the, um, uh, the rules or the, uh, laws that the government is using to mandate, um, mandate official racism, uh, we get rid of those. Well, things would have gotten a lot better, I think, in a hurry without all the bad blood that has followed, uh, followed us down to the present and without all the absurd consequences like boys, um, third-rate boy track uh, runners entering and winning girls' competitions. The other thing about Caldwell's book, and I'll just say this in passing: I, I uh, this is not a jab at Caldwell because I, I'm great, very grateful for what he has done, but I just want to say that it appears to me that Caldwell is um, a respected establishment conservative. He's the kind of guy who could um, uh, be published. In Hillsdale's uh, Imprimis newsletter. He's the kind of guy who could get um, reviewed favorably in national review. He's a respected uh, mainstream guy. But the things he says in this book are really radical. They're radical in the sense of the old Latin word radix, which means root. Something that's radical goes right to the root. And Caldwell goes right to the root, the passage of that act, and he he goes right to the root without flinching. That was the turning point. That was a terrible time. And it just just uh you just need to know that there have been people saying this all along, and the people who've been saying it all along are people who have been unjustly run off the the reservation unjustly run off for being racist. uh you guys are racist you you're you think that this Civil Rights Act was a bad thing. Well, well lo, here comes this mainstreamer saying the same thing.